Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, the village of Oberstdorf lies in the midst of the Allgauer Alps, not too far from the Austrian border. While other Alpine towns like Garmisch-Partenkirchen to the east in Oberbayern or Andermatt in Switzerland benefited historically from proximity to mountain passes and the trade routes that crossed them, and other towns like Berchtesgarten in Oberbayern grew rich from proximity to natural resources or the development of a unique craft economy, Oberstdorf did none of those things throughout its history. It was where the road literally ended, and for centuries it was an out-of-the-way community dependent on subsistence farming and some desultory iron mining. But with the arrival of the railroad and the tourist industry, Oberstdorf began to be connected to a wider world. While some at first attempted to ignore the rise of Hitler and the Nazi movement occurring over the mountains, that movement eventually captivated Oberstdorfers as well. Julia Boyd and Angelica Patel have co-written A Village in the Third Reich, How Ordinary Lives Were Transformed by the Rise of Fascism. In it, they describe both the Third Reich in Oberstdorf as well as the Third Reich scene from Oberstdorf. They recount acts of violence, complicity, and various levels of resistance from the 1920s through to the end of the war, which, for the Republic of France, officially ended in Oberstdorf. Julia Boyd has written several books, most recently, Travelers in the Third Reich, The Rise of Fascism, 1919-1945. Julia Boyd, welcome to Historically Thinking. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Um, so uh, let's begin by describing Oberstdorf uh, when Adolf Hitler was just beginning his career as a public speaker. What was it like after the end of the Great War? Uh, how had Oberstdorf been affected by that? Well, although it's um, tucked away right down at the bottom of Germany and was very far from the scenes of the First World War, it was affected, like most of Germany. Um, supplies were very difficult to, to get hold of. It's, uh, it's surrounded by mountains. Um, so life was very tough during the First World War. There was very little to eat. And the temperatures are very cold in winter, so just keeping warm was quite a struggle. And keeping the cattle alive, and of course all the men had gone off to fight, so the women were left doing everything. So life was very hard. But at the end of the 19th century, Oberstdorf had begun to develop a tourist industry. And uh, after the First World War, during the 20s, this uh, got back into gear. Of course, people were longing to find peace and um, quiet after the horrors of the First World War. So um, people were only too happy to come from the north and try and uh, enjoy the mountain scenery and recover from the trauma of the First World War. So by the late 20s, um, Oberstdorf was really quite a thriving place. And um, the Farming, um, of course, continued. It still remained at its heart, a rural community, but uh, the tourism certainly made a big difference. And it was reasonably prosperous, um, and it had, you know, sports facilities. It had a, they were a tightly knit Catholic community, but enough Protestant visitors came, visitors came, so there was a Protestant church, 
There was a cinema, there was an icing rink, a football club. It was a thriving, prosperous village. And one of the brilliant things about Oberstdorf as a subject for study is the people, the North Germans, but as we'll see, Dutch, uh, Eastern European Jews, as a tourist community, people from around Europe come to it and sometimes stay there. And that creates a collection of interesting stories in addition to these very Catholic, Ober, uh, you know, Algauer peasants. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, when um, Julius Streicher's horrible um, publication, um, the Beerbachter, was first published, um, which was profoundly, deeply um, anti-Semitic right from the start. And in its one of its very earliest editions, it attacked Oberstdorf for having Jewish tourists. And uh, Oberstdorf responded rather robustly to this, saying that Jews had every bit as much right to come and have holidays in Oberstdorf as anyone else. Now, I'm not sure that it would be fair to deduct from this that um, Oberstdorf was particularly um, pro-Jews, but I think it does show that the, um, the tourist business was more important to them than any um, anti-Semitic campaign launched by the Nazis. Um, and that really remained their chief focus. They wanted to expand their tourist industry. They built a, a, a very fine cable car. And that was where their focus was, not on really um, getting excited about the Nazis. In fact, they really didn't have much to do with the Nazis at all until the early 30s. But Surely there were some sort of um, old party fighters, uh, even in Oberstdorf. Um, although Munich is, very, I think Munich is closer to most of the parts of Germany than it is to sort of the, yes. the Alpine regions of Bavaria. Um, and the Nazi party movement began there, but it must have seemed very far away. And yet there were a few, I guess let's call them, the social scientific term might be weirdos. Uh, who were attracted to National Socialism really early on. Oh, yes. And, um, of course, after the First World War, um, many veterans turned to Hitler because, mm -hmm. I mean, my, my own personal feeling is that humiliation um, as a driver of conflict is rather often underestimated. And yes. um, I, I can say this with some confidence because when I was writing Travelers in the Third Reich, I read a lot of reports written by the Quakers. Now, the Quakers were into Germany immediately after the First World War. Um, and by January 1919, were traveling around on trains and having conversations with um, ordinary Germans. And yes, they were many of them were near starvation. It, the trains would stop for hours, unable to move because there was no fuel. There was insurrection in the cities. And of course, so many Germans were grieving the loss of loved ones. But, and this is the interesting point, the Quakers kept saying over and over again, the thing that seemed to pain them most was the humiliation, the mm -hmm. fact that their country was now being treated as a pariah, and the mm -hmm. Treaty of Versailles came as a terrible shock to them. Um, the loss of empire, the loss of prestige, the loss of prosperity. So uh, these things were, were very important, even to you know ordinary Germans, to use mm -hmm. that rather overused phrase. Um, and so there were people... Um, most um, uh, obviously, perhaps, uh, Hermann Otto Hermann Hoyer, who became one of Hitler's favorite artists. 
And he lost an arm in the First World War. And afterwards, um, he came to Oberstdorf, and it was particularly tragic for him because he was a trained artist. But amazingly, he taught himself how to paint with his left arm and um, very quickly became uh, a, a key Nazi artist. One of the most famous images of the whole period was his painting that is entitled um, In the Beginning Was the Word, and it depicts Hitler looking like the Messiah preaching to a few devoted disciples. So he was a prominent Nazi in the village. And there was a postman who um, uh, didn't come from Oberstdorf, but he was sent there after the war. Because what it is it with postmen and the Nazis? It's, well, it's it, very it extraordinary. It mean, confirms some of my worst suspicions. But uh, it, you see, it's, it happens again and again, doesn't it? It is extraordinary. And and by far the biggest clutch of Nazis in Oberstdorf were those working in the post office. So there were people who absolutely signed up to the Nazis after the war. And I think that the point was that Weimar government uh, was very fragmented. It was perceived down in Oberstdorf to be very weak. Um, and the, it seemed to them at the time that there was only one politician who really understood how desperate Germans were, how they longed for strong government, how they longed to, to return to the top table of nations. And that was, of course, Adolf Hitler. So there were definitely people who were very keen on the Nazis, but they were pretty few in number. Most people just wanted to get on with rebuilding their lives after the war, I think. But by 1932, 1933, Oberstdorfers, like the rest of Germany, are beginning to oh, yes. turn to the Nazis as a, as a viable option, as a way of, of uniting the, you know, the Gemeinschaft of, uh, of, of the country uh, yes. and becoming a unified people once more. I uh, think that's what people. I, I think that's right, and I think what really persuaded the Oberstdorfers um, to to really vote for Hitler was um, the Reichstag fire in February '33, and that, of course, was presented as a communist plot. And the Oberstdorfers were very um, conservative Catholics, and so there was there was no appetite for for socialism, let alone communism. And that's really was, I think, the turning point. That's when more people decided to um, vote for for Hitler. And they always remained, while they would remained loyal to Hitler, they weren't so keen on the other Nazis, leading Nazis, and they didn't like the stormtroopers. They didn't like their noisy uh, marches and so on very much. And the first Nazi mayor who was appointed to uh, Oberstdorf was a disaster. They'd voted for Hitler. Mm -hmm. They wanted strong government, but they were proud people. They'd run their village for generations. They didn't want some outsider coming and telling them how to run their village. And of course, that's what he did. So it was a sort of somewhat schizophrenic um, reaction to the Nazis when they, uh, after the 1933 election, they were pleased to have Hitler there as a strong leader. They were not pleased when the Nazis started telling them how to run their lives. Speaking of schizophrenic, uh, we come to the character of Mayor Ludwig, Ludwig Fink, who is the second mayor during the Third Reich, correct? Correct. And who, is a, who is a continuity through the whole story because he is mayor of Oberstdorf until the end? Yes, till uh, and, the end. And he is a very enigmatic personality. You yes. Know, is, think... he, is he a, and his and his wife, the addition of Frau Fink to the story makes it even more so. So could you explain, I mean, and, and I, I really suspect the dynamics of their marriage affect affect the history of Oberstdorf during the Third Reich? 
Well, I think that's true, but I I think every small town and village had its own unique relationship with the regime. But mm -hmm. I think one thing that they probably have in common was that even in small populations, there was an extraordinarily diverse um, response to the Nazis. And if you take Oberstdorf, at one end of the spectrum, you have people like Hoyer, who were absolutely dedicated Nazis and remained so right to the bitter end and perhaps even beyond. And then you had people like Ludwig Fink, who started out as robust Nazis because they, as we've just been discussing, wanted to see Germany's prestige restored and strong government and so on. But um, as the years went by, they realized the true colors of the regime. I think they changed their mind. And I think um, Ludwig Fink clearly moderated his view and probably lost faith with National Socialism, at least in the way it was served up by, by the Nazis. But if you protested or um, decided to resign, you know, being mayor of Oberstdorf was quite a big deal, deal. And if he had protested or said he didn't like the way things were going, the chances are he would have ended up in Dachau or in protective custody. Um, and even if people like Fink were prepared to accept uh, such a fate, uh, what about their families? And in Fink's case, you know, one of his sons was epileptic. So I think the way he dealt with his loss of faith in national socialism was really simply trying to mitigate the worst aspects of it in his own domain. So, for instance, he, uh, when the nuns were targeted, he did his best to protect them. There were only a handful of Jews living in Oberstdorf, but he certainly um, went out of his way to uh, look after them. And when more Jews came fleeing to Oberstdorf, he didn't, for instance, insist that they uh, register the name Sarah or Isaac as the law dictated. And he helped also villagers who found themselves on the wrong side of the law for black market activities or whatever. And then right at the very end of the war, when then he was under strict instructions to execute anybody trying to surrender, and if any house put up a white flag to uh, shoot or hang all the males in that household, he absolutely didn't do that. So I think one sees in Fink probably what happened to a number of people, uh, a change of heart, but really not in a position to make any um, outward protest. So went with the flow, but did his best to, to as I say, to mitigate, mitigate the worst uh, aspects. And then there were people also in the village who just didn't, were not particularly politically minded. They just wanted to keep their heads down and somehow survive. And um, I'm sure there were a good many of those too. I mentioned Frau Fink. Uh, she is uh, she has a place in the episode with the nuns, and also with the acts of resistance by Father Josef Rupp, who is the mm. priest for mm -hmm. Oberstdorf. Um, the story of the Catholic Church versus the Nazis in Oberstdorf is it's so interesting because it's a battle for the youth, isn't it? Yes, and and it's. Uh, you know, other many people have pointed this out. Uh, we've talked on, I think, on the on the podcast before the way in which uh, Nazism was a youth movement, 
and which the entire operating principle of the party, certainly after and when it took power, was to convert the youth. Um, and youth did so often against the desires of their parents to the horror of their parents. And you see this microcosm in Oberstdorf of what's going on across Germany. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I think that um, for many parents, it was very difficult because basically the regime kidnapped their children. And for mm -hmm. particularly when you think about the children in Oberstdorf, the young people, from a very early age, they were usually out there working on the farm. And um, it was a very tough life. And for the girls, it was rather circumscribed. You know, it, there wasn't a lot of variety or excitement. And suddenly they joined the Hitler Youth or the girls' version, which was the Bundesdeutsche Mädel. And life was suddenly rather interesting and fun. You know, you went on camping trips, you sang songs around bonfires. Um, and for the boys, it was sort of even more exciting. They built gliders and so on. That was how it was, at least until the later 30s, when it changed, it became much more serious. And the boys were basically doing military training and the girls were working in the Reich labor service. But in the early years of, of the Third Reich, um, it was really rather more like the Boy Scouts or the Girl Guides. And it, it sucked a lot of young people into it with great enthusiasm. Um, and then, of course, they went straight from the Hitler Youth into the Wehrmacht and the girls went to work in armaments factories or on farms, um, which wasn't so much fun. But um, the idea was to capture the youth and brainwash them. And, you, you know, it wasn't like there was the Internet or you could tune into dozens of different television stations. Um, the, the propaganda was absolutely relentless day after day after day that Führer was their leader. They, it was their duty as young people to, um, to serve the fatherland to redress the wrongs that had been done to Germany and to fight for the honor of the dead in the First World War. And this was very sort of heady stuff. Um, and I think it's not at all surprising that so many young people did become brainwashed into believing that they were the, the master race. So someone like Josef Rupp has to engage in sort of counter brainwashing, which is, yes, well, the, of course, extraordinarily dangerous. Well, the Nazis were very clever because they, for instance, um, they gave free tickets to the cinema for the boys on a Sunday, which there was carefully timed to coincide with mass. So, um, you know, the boys on the whole preferred to go to the cinema rather than to mass. And so this, this tug of war went on from Hitler's point of view, of course. It was, um, though he admired the Pope's authoritarian hold over his flock, um, the last thing he wanted was a third of his country to have their first allegiance to a foreigner in, in Italy. So the um, Catholic Church was, was persecuted um, relentlessly, really. And somebody like Rupp, who was the, the priest in Oberstdorf, um, he was very outspoken. Uh, and it was only because not only was Fink a very moderate Nazi, but so was his immediate superior. And I think if it hadn't been for those two protecting him, he would certainly have been sent to Dachau or somewhere. And um, as it was, he remained in office and learned, like so many people who didn't like the Nazis, they learned to look as if they were complying, but actually were behaving quite subversively. An interesting character who appears throughout most of the book is an, a Nazi hero. Um, 
there's a great poster in the book in the pictures of um, a tourist poster for for uh, Oberstdorf uh, and it has uh, very heroic Aryan figures enjoying you know skiing and the outdoor life and a person a real person not a poster uh, um, picture Andro Heckmeyer mm. uh, becomes a sort of lo a local hero uh, uh, but also then a, a hero of the Reich could you describe him because he has a he has a he has a very interesting history yes you're quite right he is absolutely fascinating character um, and I think is, is, is you know one of the attempts of this book was to try and give a more nuanced account of the Third Reich because if you like me I was born just after the war and grew up uh, with the version that you know it was either about monsters or, or heroes there wasn't really anything in between and Andel Heckmeyer is particularly interesting because he is a sort of in-between character um, he was an extraordinary mountain. He was an orphan, and I think he was brought up pretty much in care. But he was um, a, a, an extraordinary mountaineer. And in 1938, he led the first successful expedition um, up the north face of the Eiger. And this was a particular coup for the Nazis, because the Anschluss took place in March 1938. And this successful um, conquest of the north face of the Eiger was just um, in, in July, I think, or June. And it, it was two Germans and two Austrians. So from the Nazis' point of view, this was a, a phenomenal propaganda coup. And they were swept up, these four men, and they immediately were taken to meet Hitler and were offered all kinds of things. Actually, uh, Heckmeyer didn't entirely fall for it. He became friends with uh, um, uh, Riefenstahl, um, Hitler's... Yeah chief propagandist, but he sort of backed off. I mean, I think there was this impoverished young man who spent his life climbing but never had any money, and suddenly there he was, you know, uh, in the middle of all this, and I think it was heady stuff, but he never really showed himself to be a committed Nazi, and in fact he disgraced himself later, so instead of joining one of the elite uh, mountain regiments, he was he was sent into an inventory regiment into, into Russia. Um, and he managed to get out of Russia alive and was then sent to teach um, uh, soldiers mountaineering. And he, he got through the war. He often, he said in his autobiography, he survived the war because of his, his very highly tuned reactions uh, as a mountaineer. And this had enabled him to survive. So he's a very interesting character. And the, his second wife, whom he married after the war, is still alive. And I had a fascinating time with her in Oberstdorf um, and she remembered the occupation uh, by Moroccan soldiers uh, after the Second World War. So she was an extraordinary link really to, um, mm -hmm. to Heckmeyer and to, um, to, the, to the actual war. The role of, well, the, I just, I'll say, the most moving chapter probably for me was a chapter called uh, In Memoriam Theodore Weissenberger. Yeah. Could you um, describe Theodore Weissenberger's short and um, life and terrifying end? It is an absolutely searing tale. And I think it underlines, in my view, the um, usefulness of this kind of micro history because mm -hmm. there are these great 
big things that happened. And we all know, of course, about the horrors of the Holocaust and the euthanasia, so-called euthanasia program. And we all feel very deeply about this. But when you actually read about one individual and what it meant to one family, somehow it makes the point um, even more uh, dramatically and heartbreakingly. Anyway, this boy was the grandson of um, a mayor of Oberstdorf, who'd been the mayor during the First World War, and um, he had been born blind. But he had been sent to a school for the blind and was doing very well. He'd learned to do all kinds of skills, and the hope was that he would be able to return to Oberstdorf and live, um, you know, a, a, a good life with his family in the village. He was very musical, he had a very beautiful voice, and from a very young age used to sing in the church. But um, the Hitler's idea was that if you um, killed all the people, all the children that had some sort of disability or mental illness, um, you would be strengthening the, the country by getting rid of all the people that, as the Nazis put it, were living a life unworthy of life. And they did this to adults and to children. I, the program was stopped, at least the, the public program was stopped um, in 1940, 40, I, I think. But it, it went on individually. Um, basically, the Nazis just killed people they thought were useless. And Theodore Weissenberger was um, gassed um, when he was just a few days after his 19th birthday. And the families were told that they had died of pneumonia or um, some other disease. So the families were not, didn't realize what had happened. Although I think it began to leak out. And in fact, that was one of the reasons why the program was stopped was because people did begin to understand what was happening. And so it was brought to an end, at least as I say, in, in the public sense, although I'm sure in hospitals and institutions, it was still continued. You describe how carefully it was done in the program to make sure that people didn't, in the same place, didn't all receive uh, letters the same day. Exactly. Uh, saying that uh, all five children who were in these homes had died of pneumonia simultaneously. Exactly. And it, was, it was carefully spaced out in order to, to do it. And, and it coincided with, did that coincide with the uh, with, with the invasion of Poland or the fall of France? There was some sort of, you know, it's like a, a go order that coincides with these external things that are going on. Well, this this internal purification of the of, of the of the regime. Yes, I mean, it, it's it, it started to leak out. And the um, um, and, and then, of course, the, the, the gassing um, in, in Poland. The, the first one of the first um, it, it was in the Gestapo headquarters in Poland where they first experimented with gassing people and and then of course it was used um, in the euthanasia so-called euthanasia program the mm -hmm. the killing program but also then of course as we all know it was extended to mm -hmm. uh, the um, extermination camps um, and but it, it did start at the, the RAF at one point was they did it was known and the RAF were dropping leaflets um, explaining to that this was happening and um, the program of killing Germans at least as I say was officially brought to an end but of course as we know it didn't end there so we've had some examples of 
of resistance uh, or of nonconformity to the Nazi regime. Let's put it that way. And it reminded me reading the book, something that of all people, Ian Kershaw, back before he became Ian Kershaw, told me. Um, he had been a medievalist and he was uh, got fascinated with the Third Reich when he was studying German, I think, at, at Goethe Institute. And he explained to me the, 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 the problem in the German language, the difference between Widerstand and Resistance. Mm. And the way that in the English-speaking mind, resistance, we sort of, uh, we imagine um, people dropping from in parachutes with knives clenched in their teeth or something like that. Active. Blowing up Gestapo yeah. generals, yeah. Um, but Widerstand is, uh, well, I think he wrote 100 pages on Widerstand for the Bavarian Encyclopedia. Um, and uh, it's a much more subtle idea. And the idea is that the people who are engaging in Widerstand are the they're pieces, little bits of sand in the gears of the of the Nazi machine, and that eventually multiple acts cause parts of the machine to slow down or maybe even collapse or come to a standstill or herky-jerky movements. But there are also, so most of these acts of, 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 people of resistance in the book are acts of Widerstand, of standing against the regime. But then there are certain people, like Agatha, Agatha Maria Henriette Lamont Tripp de Beaufort, yes. uh, who is engaged in a much more obvious to us act of resistance. Yes. Um, and it's probably not surprising that she's from outside Germany. Yes. You know, she was, she was a Dutch aristocrat, and um, she built a hospital for um, Dutch sick children, a sanatorium. Um, her husband died when she was quite young and she liked Topersdorf and she had some money. So that's what she, how she decided to spend it. And um, she was really a remarkable woman, as indeed was her, her um, the director of the hospital was a German woman. And um, they were very good friends. And she was also, uh, she hated the Nazis. And they, you know, they hid well, they didn't hide, but they took Jewish children into the hospital um, and registered them as Aryan. And they managed to organize um, these children, to, some of these children to be taken over the border to Switzerland. And Henrietta herself um, packed rucksacks and went off to the camps that there were a number of camps around Oberstdorf. And she would distribute things to the Dutch people there, and there were there were so many different kinds of camps. You know, there we always think of just the concentration camps, but there were also slave labor camps, and there were there were many different sort sort of different kinds of. There was a, for instance, outside Oberstdorf, there was a Waffen SS training camp, but there was also a slave labor camp, and then there was um, a, a camp where prisoners were sent from Dachau um, and made to work on the Messerschmitt and BMW engines towards the end of the war when they evacuated these from Augsburg and Munich. They built these little manufactories in and around Oberstdorf and of course other places. So the villagers became very used to seeing all these different prisoners marching around and uh, some were worse than others and Henrietta um, used to pack supplies and take them off and fearlessly go to demand to see the commandants of these camps and make sure that these things were distributed to the Dutch people. Um, so she was, she was remarkable. 
Shoes are remarkable. Uh, the, one thing was, it, it is extraordinary that there are so many of these different camps around Oberstdorf. Are we to take that as typical throughout the, without Germany by this time? To, or is this? Yeah, I mean, I, it came as a total new bit of information to me. I hadn't realized that the, the main camps that we've all heard of, you know, like Dachau and Auschwitz and so on, all had, all spawned um, dozens and dozens of sub-camps. Um, mm -hmm. And, Around um, Oberstdorf, there were three Dachau subcamps, um, and you know that that was that was a sort of complete um, novelty for me. Um, I think that um, one of the things that I, you know people often ask how much would the villagers have known about what was going on, and, and in my view, they really did know quite a lot. Not only were there these camps all around, but soldiers, of course, were coming back all the time from, from leave and must have talked to their families and friends about the atrocities they'd seen or even taken part in. And then just um, a few miles north of Oberstdorf, there was Zontofen, where there was a, a Nazi stronghold where Himmler, for instance, was known to go there and brief local Nazis on the final solution. Um, and was this the uh, that Adolf that extraordinary looking building like a yes, sort of, uh, high, high rise in the midst yes. of the, the castle? Yes. Yeah, the uh, for the Adolf Hitler School, which yes, that obviously. made me look up this entire mad scheme to create a sort of postgraduate, yeah, you know, Nazi it's, ideology and scientific progress yes, sort of system of schools. Yes, um, four of them. Each one would have a special focus, and the one at Zonthofen was going to, I think, concentrate on diplomacy and Nazi philosophy. Um, in fact, it never really got completed because the war came along before it. But the idea was to have a sort of seamless for the for the um, the elite, um, the elite young Aryans. There was going to be a sort of seamless from very young age right the way through um, to universe, so-called university, uh, and then into the Wehrmacht or whatever. These were going to be the Nazi leaders, and they were sort of based on the Teutonic Knights. That was the sort of um, impression uh, that was, was, was given. But in fact, the Zontofen one never really came to fruition. So it was instead, it did house an Adolf Hitler school, and it was a sort of place where senior Nazis came for conferences and things like that. Um, um, so although Oberstdorf was so remote, and I, when I was first suggested me to, to me to write this book, I first thought, well, um, it didn't seem that Oberstdorf was a very likely place to have anything interesting to offer um, <laughs> insights into the war. You know, there it was, right down on the bottom of Germany. And I, I imagine that it, the war had largely passed it by. So it came as quite a surprise to me to, to realize that there was scarcely any aspect of the um, whole Third Reich, Second World War that didn't touch the village in one way or another. And one of the things that was a surprise was the fact that these camps were so close and that the, these factories producing BMW uh, engines and Messerschmitts and so on, that, that in fact, in the next door valley to Oberstdorf, um, women were switched from milking cows pretty much overnight to making the ME262 um, jet <laughs> engines, which were the first jet engines, I think, used in, in warfare. Um, so, yes, Oberstdorf was a long way, you would think, but it was... In, in many ways, it was right there at the center of things. 
And as I said at the in the intro, um, there's also the view of the war from Oberstdorf. Not only are lots of things, all the paraphernalia and the institutions and the hideous machinery of the Nazi regime coming to Oberstdorf and being established in that valley or neighboring valleys, Oberstdorfers are being sent to the entire periphery of this new empire. Yes. And it's really, I mean, just flipping back and forth to the footnotes, it's... Uh, Things change with Barbarossa. Absolutely. Um, you, you can see just in the death tolls, as you as you point out. Yeah. Um, so, and Barbarossa, it does seem to be you know June forty one is the big transition moment yeah. in Oberstdorfer's perspective of the war. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, even people who were not um, necessarily supporters of Hitler uh, were obviously very pleased by the astonishing successes of the Blitzkrieg. Um, you know, this was this was Germany back where they felt it belonged. You know, as I said at the top table of nations, it was back from the horrors and humiliation of the First World War. So there was a lot of pride, even if even from people who, as I say, hadn't joined the party or had necessarily supported Hitler. Um, but then all the old fears returned. They had been promised a quick, easy victory, um, and when that didn't happen, and it clearly wasn't going to happen any time soon once um, Hitler invaded um, the Soviet Union, then I think morale began to um, go down very quickly. Um, so I think, yes, the, the view of, of, of um, from Oberstdorf is we were very, very lucky to get access to two diaries um, which were kept by soldiers who were not themselves from Oberstdorf, but they fought in the 99th Regiment, the 1st Mountain Division, in which there were about perhaps 200, couple of hundred Oberstdorf boys fighting. So thanks a to lot, these diaries, I was able to track um, Oberstdorfers right the way through the war, from the first day of the war when they invaded Poland, right through to the very end. and. Um, that um, was an enormous bit of luck. I mean, when you find sources like that, it it actually makes so much difference um, because you really get a sense of what it was like for the Oberstdorfers watching their sons and brothers and fathers um, going to these, having to fight in, U well, actually, what was Ukraine? Most they were made, and then they were in the Balkans, and of course they fought across France. So. Um, that was a, a a huge bonus, being allowed to use those those diaries. Speaking of what people knew when they knew it, um, these these Alpencore, uh regiments have, like the myth of the clean Luftwaffe, there was a myth of the clean, the the, the Edelweiss and the clean Alpencore. And one of the sources is you cite is a book, Bloody Edelweiss. Yes, that's, um, that's yes. Particularly, mm. particularly for your uh, for their actions in the former Yugoslavia against partisans. There are also Oberstdorfers on the Eastern Front who see everything that's happening to the Jews, absolutely, and, and to the and to the Ukrainians and to the Russians for that matter. I mean, anybody that that gets into the maw of of the Nazi regime, and there are people in Oberstdorf or or connected to Oberstdorf who are complicit. And one of them is Heinz Schubert. 
Absolutely. Uh, whose wife is is taken refuge in Oberstdorf during the war. I, I, I imagine there are many such. But could you describe what Heinz Schubert was up to? Yes, he was um, a member of a particularly unpleasant unit called the Einsatzgruppe. And their task was to go in after the Wehrmacht had conquered a new territory and uh, murder Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, anybody that the Nazis didn't approve of. And Heinz Schubert, whose wife went to Oberstdorf to have her baby, a lot of pregnant women went to Oberstdorf. Um, there were a lot of refugees and evacuees. Um, and she was one of them who turned up in Oberstdorf. And um, Heinz Schubert was responsible for organizing the murder of 700 gypsies in Crimea. And it's very interesting because after the war, um, there was a Einsatzgruppe trial at Nuremberg, and he was one of the defendants. Um, and, you know, these men were not psychopaths. I think there was a priest, there was a lawyer, there was a philosopher. Um, they were educated people. And perhaps the most telling thing that I read in this trial was when the prosecutor, well, first of all, Heinz Schubert claimed descendant to be a descendant from Franz Schubert's family. I mean, Schubert didn't have children, but he had several siblings. So it's perfectly plausible that Heinz Schubert did indeed descend from a brother of, or sister of, um, of Schubert's a brother. Um, but um, he said to the prosecutor when he was being cross-examined, we thought we were saving Western civilization. And I think this takes us back to the brainwashing point um, that as a, you know, from very early age, no doubt, Heinz Schubert um, had been uh, told that he was superior, that the, the, the communists were going to roll over Europe and destroy everything like Genghis Khan. And it was up to these young men to destroy the, 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 the fatherland's enemies. And perhaps they really believed that. I don't know. But um, Heinz Schubert was condemned to death originally, and then the, the sentence was commuted, and eventually he was released, as so many Nazis were, in, uh, I think, 1952. Um, but it's, uh, as I say, there is scarcely any horror of the Second World War and the Third Reich that doesn't turn up in Oberstdorf in one form or another, and Heinz Schubert certainly represents the horror of the Einsatzgruppe. In, I think it's early 1944, Goebbels makes his total war speech. Is that? Yes. Yes. Um, could you explain uh, what he meant? Uh, and I, we've already uh, discussed a little bit what total war looks like in Oberstdorf and the surrounding region. It's the BMW and Messerschmitt engines being made in, in dispersed factories uh, and probably underground factories being attempted or planned or mm, things mm -hmm. like that. It's It's... It's the idea of the national redoubt uh, being fenced around by the Alps, uh, I guess, of which Oberstdorf would probably have been a part. But what, what is this total war and how does that further change Oberstdorf? Well, I think it was a sort of, it must have been a chilling shock because, I mean, the war was already pretty grisly for people, civilians. You know, they'd been asked to sacrifice so much and give so much and uh, and... Now suddenly they were being asked to do even more. Um, and I think it, it was just a turning of the screw um, and the realization that there was a very real 
chance they were going to lose this war. And then, of course, the bombing increased and the bombing raids were horrendous. Oberstdorf at least was spared that, but they did see all the... Um, well, first, they had the refugees from northern Germany uh, at the beginning of the war. And then when the, um, they were, when the Allies were able to reach the south to Augsburg and Munich, then there were plenty more refugees coming from there. And then, of course, at the end of the war, there were um, um, refugees from fleeing the Russians. So Oberstdorf's population was actually doubled in the course of the war from about 4,000 before it to about 8,000 with, with evacuees and refugees. And also, as I was saying, pregnant women came there. Um, so there was a lot of tension inside the village because they didn't really like outsiders. And by outsiders, they didn't just mean foreigners. They meant people <laughs> coming from North Germany. And there were terrible... Well, they probably meant people that come in from Niederbayern. Yeah, I mean, they, those, are, those are the worst. They resented the pregnant women who sort of lay around smoking all day. Um, well, it's, there was a lot of internal strife, um, as you you know, you can imagine. And I think uh, Goebbels' speech must have sent a cold shudder down everyone's spine. It was a, a ratcheting up of all the horrible things that had already um, were happening, but it was obviously going to get a great deal worse. Um, so does that mean then that uh, that the entire is uh, how does that affect the population of Oberstdorf? I, I imagine then the if we're describing all these these girls uh, going into the factories uh, in the valleys, the entire population between the ages of seventeen and fifty five must be activated somehow to prosecute total war. Yes, and and you know there was not too much around to eat. Um, one one uh, boy who was uh, evacuated to Oberstdorf commented that the food was so filthy in one of the inns that even the cat wouldn't touch it. Um, and so it was, life was really tough. And, and you know, in the winter, it was really cold. Um, so I I think it, and, and the, 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 the worry about your menfolk who are out there fighting in Russia or wherever, um, I think it must have been an absolute, even without the constant bombing raids, it must have been an absolutely nightmarish existence. Um, and people began to long for it to be over, which is why the Nazis imposed um, such terrible sanctions on anybody who started talking about defeat. And right at the end of the war, um, when, when Oberstdorf had its own um, uh, resistance group, if you like, um, and there was a, a group of, of, of Oberstdorfers who were determined to surrender the village to the Allies so that the village wouldn't be destroyed by bombardment. And it was astonishing that they managed to a achieve this. Um, but it, you know, it was really frightening um, at the end of the war because there was this very clear structure that anybody who talked or even made a a, a mild comment about hoping the war would soon be over could be could be shot um and so there was the tension with nazis fleeing from the north coming south um because they felt that they'd be safer in the mountains or they would escape over the mountains and there was this Pfaffen ss training camp um so there was a great influx of nazis at the end of the war um and nobody really knew who to trust and um who was doing what, and 
it, it was very tense in those last days of the war. For Before we talk about the, la- the sort of the last act of the war in Oberstdorf, which is <laughs> which is really incredible yes. uh, in all sorts of ways. Uh, um, it's always chilling to realize um, that at a moment when railroad capacity is everything to the Nazi war effort, that the Reichsbahn is still sending, being used to send people to the camps and to be destroyed, to, uh, to be gassed and cremated when they should be sending ammunition, troops, tanks, wherever, to the east, to the western fronts. Um, and likewise, you can see this. It's like as the Nazis, as they fall into hell, they're still grabbing at people to take with them. Absolutely. You couldn't put it at, better. That's exactly how it was. Um, it was as if Hitler, the, you know, if if if... If he if he couldn't survive, if the Reich was going to fall, he would take all the Germans, all his the country with him. There was no sense of of saving people or or minimizing the horror at the end. Uh, it was pure Armageddon. It was like Die Valkyrie in Wagner's Ring. It was everything. He's, he's everything certainly was determined. Yeah, he certainly determined to accomplish his mission of destroying European Jewry. Yes, and uh, you you talk about Eva Noak Mosse, yes. who is a very that happened. She is drawn into the death machinery very late in the war. Yes, the privileged Jews. I mean, the, most of the Jews living in Oberstdorf were so-called privileged Jews, which meant they were either married to non-Jews, or they only had one Jewish grandparent, and um, they were um, able to escape the worst. Um, persecutions up, up to a point. But then right at the end of the war, um, in 1945, the Gestapo sent out all these letters. You know, 1945, when the, the Allies were advancing from the West, the Russians were advancing from the East, and they they sent out these letters to people like Eva and summoned them to go to Theresienstadt or to other uh, concentration camps. And so um, she, right at the very last... Um, really last gasp of the war, uh, spent a couple of months there. Fortunately, she she um, survived, and uh, but they didn't know right at the end. They knew the Allies were getting closer. In fact, I think it was the Russians who um, liberated Theresienstadt. But they knew that the war was about to end, but they didn't know whether the Nazis would just kill them all before um, they could be liberated. And she saw, she witnessed um, one of the death marches, you know, the... the prisoners that were taken from Auschwitz marched um, west, they arrived at Theresienstadt. And um, Eva gives the most chillingly uh, description of these people. Um, so it's hard to get inside the heads of the Nazis at the end. I mean, when they were facing defeat, it was as if, as you said, they wanted to bring everything down with them. And um, there was no sense of, well, uh, it's pointless now. Why? Why should any? Why? Why not just stop it here? Um, it just went on and on and on to the very bitterest end. Which brings us very nicely to the Heimatschutz, uh, which you've referred to already. A group of Oberstdorfers who are determined that Oberstdorf won't be dragged into the pit. Um, so, could you describe what they did and? Also, I, I, I love this detail. It's uh, having grown up in a small village, I easily believe that such a thing as the Heimatschutz, which you would think would be a symbol of uh, a 
a source of great pride to Oberstdorfers, was nonetheless surprisingly controversial after the yes. war and for probably decades after. Well, it, it is a very interesting um, chapter. I mean, Oberstdorf's story in the uh, in, in, it comes to a very dramatic end. Um, mm-hmm. the, the fear was that the Allies would, would 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 bombard the village, and because there were so many Nazis in the valleys around and in Zontofen and and in the training camps and so on, there was real worry that there would be a, a, a very fierce uh, fight right at the end. And um, a couple of Oberstdorf young men, who had been rather sort of wild characters as young men, um, decided to try and do something about this. And he was, um, Richter was the leader, and he was working for the, um, he was a soldier, but he was, I think, in the SS even. But he managed, and I don't know how he managed to do this, he managed to form um, a, a, a core of fighting men. And... They kept their plans completely secret. How he managed to do this is is really remarkable because these were all men who lived in and around the village. But just before the end of the war, they struck. They came in from the mountains and they went into the homes of all the known Nazis and arrested them and locked them up. And then there was this nail-biting moment waiting for the Allies to come. And they didn't come and they didn't come and it must have been absolute... Uh, agony um, waiting for them but then they did finally arrive the French arrived in the middle of a blizzard mm-hmm. and um, not just any French but black French Africans well, the, the, officers, the officers were of course French but the, the soldiers yeah. were, were Moroccans so you can imagine <laughs> this extraordinary sight of black Moroccan soldiers coming into Oberstdorf uh, with snow all around and the poor Moroccans were of course absolutely frozen but the uh, remarkable thing was that this did actually take place without any bloodshed. And um, yes, they were heroes for a time. They were absolute heroes. Um, but then the French rather handed over, they, they sort of handed over a lot of uh, authority to them. And then the Heimatschutz uh, rather fell apart because they started um, acting like warlords. They mm. would go to... You know, a lot of people had huts in the mountains where they were storing food or supplies. And the Heimatschutz would go up and um, force their way in. And they would, they would tell, who was, tell the French who was a Nazi and who wasn't. And they got out of control. But the French were only there for uh, three months. And then the Americans came and they weren't going to have any. Because the Heimatschutz actually had guns. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so they were marching around the place. Um, and that the villagers didn't like that at all. Um, so they they lost they lost all the prestige and honor they had won by saving Oberstdorf. It was very quickly uh, whittled away by the, by their behavior. But once the Americans came in, they were disbanded, and that was that. In fact, the guy who um, led the um, Heimatschutz, I think, ended up killing himself, committed suicide. Yeah, I, I want, it, it's taken 70 or 80 years for lots of um, the untold stories of the fall of the Third Reich to be finally out aired. Um, you know, for example, the massive rape by the Red Army of uh, women in the East. Um, but also the epidemic of suicides that occurred at the in April and May and June of 1945 
so many people committed suicide or and committed murder suicide with their families. Yeah. Did that any of that happen in Oberstdorf? Well, um, I, no, I don't think in that sense. But um, there were two Jews um, who were also like Eva summoned to Theresienstadt, and mm-hmm. they committed suicide with the help of an um, Oberstdorf doctor, um, mm-hmm. and. Um, there weren't so many suicides, I think, in Oberstdorf. They're the first Nazi mayor, Zettler, um, mm. who the Oberstdorfers managed to get rid of. Um, he and his family are typical in as much as they committed suicide. There were people who felt that without National Socialism, life wasn't going to be worth living. And then there must have been plenty of Nazis who knew that they had so much blood on their hands and just didn't want to go through the whole business being tried and executed. I mean, so I think suicide, I'm not surprised there was a great wave of suicides. Um, And it was perhaps the only possible reaction for many people who knew that that it was over, it was finished. There would never be, um, they could never get back to where they were. And and a lot of people were so obsessed with Hitler that uh, it was like almost like a cult that um, life without Hitler, life without national socialism, wasn't worth living. I, I did say mention this in the introduction, so I want to conclude with it. Uh, I realize this is the third podcast in about three months where Charles de Gaulle has been featured. Uh, this is not a plan. This is this is serendipity. But of all people. At some point in May, is it May? Yes. Uh, the the French are the French army. Basically, the end of the road for the French army is Oberstdorf. Yes. Uh, the free French army and uh, staff car drives up and outsteps mm, the big cheese, the the grand fromage himself, and looks around probably with dismissively, and then they have the sort of ceremony marking the end of the war. But I'm sure for in his head also the resurrection of the spirit of the French Republic. Absolutely. But there's also rather a nice story because Henrietta, who we talked about earlier, was, as I said, was a Dutch aristocrat. And mm-hmm. when de Gaulle appeared, um, they wanted him to stay there because it was, you know, the nicest house, probably. And she said, no way. This is Dutch. This is a Dutch house. Not <laughs> so he had to go and stay somewhere else. I can, you can just imagine everybody getting terrible flap or where are we going to put him? But actually, what was rather touching was um, that evening... The, um, the 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 French and the Germans, the Oberstdorfers, all sort of you know some of the French soldiers danced with German girls. I mean, there was actually rather a, a touching um, evening. I mean, I don't think it lasted because after that things got very tough. There was very little food, and um, Oberstdorfers were on the point of starvation, as indeed were Germans everywhere. But it was a dramatic end to. Oberstdorf's war, that General de Gaulle himself should have had a victory parade right there in their village. Well, we're at the end of our conversation, but I would remiss, be remiss and violate probably some sort of code of ethics for myself in this podcast if I didn't ask you about sources ah, and yes. about how the book came to be, because it turns out that uh, Germany has a fantastic custom where every village, town, I don't know, municipality has to develop an official multi-volume history, which is uh, is extraordinarily German, uh, but also very useful. Yes, I mean, the, this only reason it was possible to tell the story of Oberstdorf um, 
is because of the sources. There's a sort of huge wealth of material out there. Um, unpublished memoirs, the diaries I mentioned, recorded interviews, um, but most of all the archival material. And the most important um, source of information for this book was Oberstorff's own archive. And it, you know, when you think about it, it's, I think it's very highly commendable that they have kept their archive so well, because at the end of the war, all anybody wanted to do was just forget the whole thing. They just wanted to forget National Socialism, Hitler, and everything to do with the Nazis. And so you, you would think it would be in a very easy moment to destroy documents or lose things. And the fact that the Oberstorf archives was kept so immaculately, I think, is highly commendable and great credit to the village. Um, but there were all kinds of different sources we use, and um, it's only by piecing it all together a little bit here. It's like a jigsaw, basically. You get a, a little bit of information there, a little bit there, and you try to put it all together to, to make a coherent picture. But it's the primary sources, and that's what makes a book like this um, credi creditable, is that it's using sources at, that were written at the time. Who who you use the term we? Who is the the we in addition to Julia Boyd? Well, well, um, Angelica Patel, of course. I mean, there is no way I could possibly have written this book um, without somebody in the village. I mean, you, I couldn't have just rolled up as a random Brit and said, "I'm going to write a book about your village," um, and it was her idea. Um, there was already a book. The the um, village formed a committee again, very German. Um, at the beginning of this century and felt they really must um, um, record their Nazi history before uh, all the people who'd actually lived through it were had died. And and they commissioned um, Angelica to write a history. Sorry, my telephone is... Um, to, we'll to write a book. So there was... This was a wonderful launch pad. I mean, the book I wrote is is very different and there was a lot of additional mm -hmm. research. But... It would have been impossible to do it without uh, Angelica and without the archives of the village. Uh, I couldn't have ever found or sourced all that information on my own. How, how did you track down the memoirs and the journals? Those weren't deposited in the village archive, surely. Or, or are Oberstdorfer's civic-minded enough that, that, that they put their diaries or their children put their diaries and so on in the village archive? No, that be, I mean, that I... That would be wonderful. I found things on the internet. The, uh, the I had a long correspondence. There was a Jewish dentist we haven't mentioned, but um, mm -hmm. he escaped from Oberstdorf with Henrietta's help just um, uh, just not long before Kristallnacht. And I had a very long correspondence with um, him. He sadly died, and he sent me loads of letters and information. Um, and then also with Henrietta's family, her nephew very kindly sent me uh, a lot of letters in Dutch. Um, and I found um, material about Elbrus through looking at obscure books and tracking down um, articles and things, which was a, when uh, there was... Um, a, a mountain expedition to to scale Elbrus, which was the highest mountain, which is the highest mountain in Europe, and this was a propaganda ploy mm -hmm. to put the swastika on top of Elbrus. So that was 
that that again it was looking at all kinds of different sources so at the heart of it was the uh, archives in Oberstdorf but there were many other sources that I used as well. Well my guest today has been Julia Boyd she's the co-author along with Angelica Patel of A Village in the Third Reich How Ordinary Lives Were Transformed by the Rise of Fascism. Julia Boyd thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 